topic for today is confrontation. And I wonder how you feel about that. For example, if I had said to you before church today, hey, I want to speak to you after church because uh, you've done something that I found out about and we need to talk about this, how would you feel? Well, I suspect that some of you just might laugh because I'm such a lighthearted softy, you know, what am I going to do to you? But um, maybe others of you would be kind of nervous. I find that confrontation makes me anxious and insecure and looking for a way to escape. And I figure that most of us will do almost anything to avoid confrontation. Yet the Bible teaches us that confrontation, if properly handled, is a good thing. And so it's something we need to learn to embrace and to do it well. After all, the gospel news of Jesus Christ himself confronts us. Why did God come to earth in the person of Jesus? Ultimately, it was to save us, but first he had to point out we need, we need saving from, from our sin. Deuteronomy's reading today, the Old Testament reading, gave us a perfect picture of the law. All this good stuff God promises, and all you have to do is choose to do good. All you have to do is choose to be a good person, and you have all of these promises. Well, that's one way to relate to God, but humans can't do that because we're fallen. It's a perfectly rational choice. Look at all this good stuff I get. Well, I'm just going to be good. But we don't make rational decisions when it comes to moral choices because there's a piece of us which is broken. And Jesus had to say, has to say, you're a sinner. Psalm 1 that we read um, is about Jesus. It's not about us because we have walked in the way of the ungodly. We have listened to false teachers and at the end of the psalm, we're all sinners. But Jesus is the one who comes, fulfills the law, lives a perfect life on our part. And he says to us, you're a sinner. You're going the wrong way. Turn around and come back to me. And once we turn to Christ, we're on a journey. <clears throat> a journey to become more like him. And I don't know about you, but I've got so far to go and so much changing to do. No, I was being nice. I do know about you. You've got a lot farther to go to. And for me to make that journey, I need other people's perspective and input in order to help me do that because so often I do not see my sin in myself. That's why God puts us into a church and tells us to love our brothers and sisters enough to confront them, to challenge them, to do seemingly impossible things like change to be more like Jesus. Of course it's impossible on our own. That's why we need God's help and guidance. <clears throat> And as life unfolds and we seek to do that in our relationship with one another, it's a little bit like walking along the ridge of that roof line up there from the outside. First, if it's a tightrope walk, it's hard to keep a balance, but we have to keep a balance. You see, it's easy to slip and roll over on that side of the church and over there is condemnation where everything gets noisy and aggressive and hurtful and usually very, very messy. Or we fall down and tumble off the other side of the church to avoidance. Rather than confronting the person with the issue, we just let it fester inside until it turns rancid. Maybe there's a relationship or a situation you're involved in at the moment that is about to explode or go rancid, one or the other, unless it's confronted. Well, if there is, then I'm sure it will make you think instantly about the book of Philemon. Okay, probably not, but you should. It's a short book, just 21 verses, 
as you listen to it read this morning or read along with it, you read an entire book of the Bible today. You get a gold star on your Christian report card. Well, in this book, which is easily missed, it's so short, the Apostle Paul's writing said the relationship between two Christians can be restored. For a great wrong has been done, and there is much that needs to be confronted without falling into either avoidance or condemnation. So if you want to follow along, because it's a short book, you can go to the book of Philemon in the black uh, pew Bible that you have in front of you. Well, there are three characters in the story. Paul, of course, and Philemon. It looks like Philemon met Paul and became a Christian through him at some point because um, in verse 19, Paul reminds him that he's uh, his Philemon's spiritual father and that uh, Philemon owns, owes Paul his own spiritual life. And now in verse 2, we see that he's, uh, he hosts and he leads a church in his house. That was the common pattern of worship in the early days of the church to meet in houses. And the fact that he's got a house big enough to hold church meetings in shows he's probably got a bit of wealth. And like any wealthy citizen in Roman times, he would therefore also have had servants, such as the third character in the story here, Onesimus. That name Onesimus means useful. What were his parents thinking when they named him useful? I don't know, maybe he had a brother called multipurpose. I don't know. But as Paul makes a a play on his name in verse 11, and he says, he was a useless servant to you, but now he's useful to me. He's making a play on Onesimus' name. Onesimus was a useless slave because he had apparently stolen some money from Philemon and stolen himself by running away from Philemon's house. But like they say, it's a small world. And can you imagine Paul bumps into Onesimus, an irony of irony, Onesimus is a slave on the run, and somehow he meets Paul, and Paul converts Onesimus to Jesus Christ. And so Paul, despite every personal inclination to keep Onesimus as a friend and a helper who's now useful to him, nevertheless sends him back to Philemon with a heartfelt plea. That's in verse 12, verses 12 and 14. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Onesimus has been serving Paul in prison, maybe running tasks for him, maybe writing letters, sending letters. Paul knows that Onesimus has stolen from Philemon, he's run away from him, and he can't just Move on and forget the past now that the man is converted and working with him. No, the issue that has divided Onesimus and Philemon must be confronted. It can't be left to fester or to turn rancid. Onesimus has to return to Philemon and make peace with him. Paul, you see, knows that the Christian work he does will have no integrity if the relationship between these two men is not restored. And that's very striking. All the good work we do as a church will have no integrity if the relationships between us are not right. So if we have a problem with someone or develop a problem with someone or be a problem to someone, we should sort it out. Father Alex gave us some guidelines in his time here. Rule number one of Father Alex's rules was keep short accounts. That means when you have a problem developing, you just don't let that account get longer and longer and longer and longer and longer, but you keep a short account. His second rule, anybody remember? Charitable assumptions, that's right. 
when you wonder why did they do that, try to find the most charitable way of thinking about why someone would have done something. Not the worst way, but the most charitable way. I'd like to add to that, I need a short, punchier title, but accept the reality that disappointment is a part of relationships. I'll have more to say about that at the semi-annual parish meeting on September 18th, Sunday, September 18th. I'm going to talk a little bit about the rector search and uh, and anticipation of a new rector. But in our minds, we need to have in mind that disappointments are part of relationships. That's because that's what human beings do to each other when they're in relationships. They disappoint each other. I told the staff, pastoral staff this uh, several weeks ago, I know I'm going to disappoint them. And they're going to disappoint me. But that's part of being in a relationship. If you have a friend, that friend is going to disappoint you. If you have children, they're going to disappoint you. If you're married, you're going to have disappointments. That's the way that relationships work. Ramona saved me from disappointment, disappointing the whole church today. She, there was some mix-up over printing bulletins, and Ramona and I both printed bulletins. I went to print the bulletins yesterday, and I was out of black toner. And so I had to convert the bulletin that Nikki sent me to a Word file and print it out in dark green. It didn't look very nice. And, um, uh, and, and then I was going to print it out, and then I realized I didn't have any clean copy paper. So I had to go to Dollar General. And Dollar General, copy paper is cheap and flimsy. And um, I, I put the bulletins out on the table, and Nikki saw them and said, Oh, no. Then I said, but I saw some over here. I don't know. And, and we, so Ramona, by, by double, doubling me up, saved me from disappointing you. As senior warden, she may do that an awful lot. I don't know. Well, more about this topic as we, um, as, as we, as we move together through this process. Um, so if we have a problem with someone, or we cause a problem, or we see a problem developing, we should sort it out. And I tell you, whatever the problem that develops between us, I bet it's not going to be as big a problem as Onesimus's problem. For if Philemon ever got his hands on this runaway slave, he would have been under strong pressure from his fellow slave owner neighbors to make an example of him. You have to make an example of a rebellious, thieving slave. Philemon would have every right to punish him under Roman law and not only have the right, but social pressure to exercise that right. Rebellious, runaway slaves in those days would have had the letter F for the Latin word that's the cognitive fugitive branded on their forehead so that for the rest of their lives, everybody would know that this is someone that could not be trusted. But that was only if the owner was in a good mood when the runaway slave was found, because it's much more likely that the runaway slave would be turned over to the authorities to be crucified. How else do you keep so many slaves as developed in the Roman Empire in order unless you kill the ones that are disobedient? So imagine how Onesimus must have felt as he turned up back at Philemon's house. He would have dreaded every step walking up the sidewalk to the house. And can you imagine the surprise that Philemon would have had as he sees a slave? Barely able to control his temper as he snatches this letter from Paul. Yet what does he read? Verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Paul says, maybe this is why this problem developed between the two of you, so that now you can have a different relationship. One not as a slave and a master, but one as two brothers in Christ. And imagine Philemon reading that and thinking, what? He's not beloved to me, Paul. He deserves to die for what he did. He's humiliated me in front of my neighbors. 
and he's stolen from me. But Philemon is not only to forgive Onesimus, but now this slave is a Christian. He is to model in his home, Philemon is to model in his home what the Christian gospel has to say about the slavery issue. Imagine going to this fellowship house, the church that meets in Philemon's home, and um, there's about to be a small revolution one night because as the, as the uh, group gathers, no longer does Onesimus come in bringing a meal and in ob- obeisance lay out the food and then slink away to the kitchen. But he sits down with everybody, begins going through the scriptures. He's to be at the heart of the group sharing Paul's prayer requests, sitting down with the others, studying, praying, and participating as one of them. That relationship has changed. This is a test case of Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the buried time bomb ticking away in the New Testament that would, in the 19th century, unleash the great abolition movement that would cause slavery to end in most of the world. Philemon's challenge to show what it means for us to all be one in Christ. And see the sacrifices everyone has to make in order for the relationship to be restored. Paul is old and in prison. He could do with all the help he can get. And yet he's giving away a good friend, a helper, a son, a, some, a man he calls his own heart. Onesimus is prepared to go back to Philemon, to go back to him in person and see the one whom he has offended, knowing that he's under the great possibility of a death sentence. It feels bad when you have to own up to the, the faults of your past. How bad is it when you're facing a possible death sentence. When I have to apologize or arrange a difficult conversation, I find it something I want to avoid. But Onesimus walks all the way back home. Now he's a Christian, and Christ calls him to hold up his hand and say, it was my fault. I'm sorry. I wronged you. Please forgive me. And Philemon, well, he has to take very seriously some verses from Colossians Bear with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Later in the service, we say a variation of this together in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And that forgiveness of others must not be simple words, but it prompts us to take action. Philemon has got to not only forgive, but treat his slave as a brother. And Paul is emphatic about this. He says in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And so one question to us this morning is, who are we trying to avoid? Who would we rather not receive with warmth and affection if they walked through the back door right now? As I examine myself on this issue, I find both the ideas of condemnation and avoidance arising in my heart. And so it's easy to self-justify and to make excuses. Oh, what good will it do to talk to that person? It'll just start a big argument. It's their problem anyway. Why should I get involved? But at the end of the day, it's simply that we must want to make the same sacrifices that Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon are called to make here. And that's why we need to see why Paul gives orders Philemon to make the sacrifice I mean, why seek reconciliation? Well, it's in verse 8. 
Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Just think about that little phrase, for love's sake, for a moment. We all make our decisions for something or someone's sake. In other words, what's our motivation for our decision? A lot of our decisions are made for convenience's sake. Choose an easy life. Or for profit's sake. Always asking, what's in it for me? I'll do whatever works well for me. Then there's for guilt's sake. I think we do a lot of things because we feel bad about them, because we feel we ought to do them for the sake of duty. But Paul says to Philemon here, I could guilt trip you, I could command you, I could try to manipulate you, but I'd much rather you to do this for love's sake. But what is that? We use the word love in all kinds of different ways, don't we? We say, I love potato chips. I love my job. I love my country. I love my parents. I love my wife. I love my church. And all those loves are kind of different. We use the same word in a lot of different ways. But I don't think they're the same kinds of love. Paul's talking here about the Greek word agape, which you may have heard before. It means a self-giving love, a self-sacrificing love, a love that doesn't expect anything in return. When I say I love potato chips, I have an expectation for those potato chips, that they'll be crispy and yummy, not soggy and maggot-eaten. If, I had a bag of, if, if you had a bag of potato chips here, and you said, would you like some potato chips? And I said, I love potato chips. And you said, well, here, have some potato chips. I know the bag of potato chips, and they're stinky and gross looking. Then all of a sudden, I don't love those potato chips anymore. What kind of love is that? Oh, I love you. Oh, I don't. What kind of love is that? Jesus talk, Paul's talking here about a love, a self-giving love. But now, wait a second, you might say, what was Jesus saying in the Gospels? About you must hate your father and brother and mother and sister, and even your own life. You must take up your cross. Well, I think Jesus here is using hyperbole, and I think I can prove that because Jesus loved his mother. On the cross, he looks down, sees his mother, and he makes arrangements for her. He says, John, please take care of my mother. I can't abandon my mother. I think Jesus is talking about the things that give us our identity We must find them in Jesus and not elsewhere. But that's a different sermon. But the kind of love that Jesus showed on the cross is the kind of love that Paul is describing. In Colossians, Paul writes that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, not when we were his enemies, not when we were his friends, but while we were still his enemies. Look, imagine you decide you're going to get a dog for yourself as a pet. So you go down to the Alachua County Animal Shelter. Have any of you ever done that? Yeah, several of you. You walk in and you've got pretty much a free choice, a free choice of any dog in the shelter. And what do you do? What is it that you're looking for in a dog? I imagine that you would walk around looking at all the little dogs and one of them would catch your eye and you say, that's the one I want. And all the little pets, uh, puppies are looking up at you and, and saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. But you say, this, uh, something special about this one. For some reason, something special is just about this one. Well, that's what we would expect. You would look for the one that appeals to you. It would be really unusual if you walked in and said, I'm looking for the ugliest, angriest, nastiest dog you got. 
I want the kind of dog that has absolutely nothing attractive about him at all. And they lead you to this mangy dog with a rabid look in its eye, and the dog starts growling. And you say, that's the dog. That'd be extraordinary. But the Bible says that God's love for us is not a love that walks around and sees us and says, wow, what an adorable little human being. How could I keep myself from loving them? God's love to choose us is to love, choose to love that which is not lovely. Again, he chose us while we were his enemies. There was once a time when we were alienated from him. We weren't just morally neutral, floating around, neither loving God or hating God. No, we were lost and dead in our sins. But he said, I'm going to choose to love you. While you were still his enemy, God made the decision to love you. That's the news of the gospel. And that's the kind of love that Paul is calling Philemon to show to Onesimus. I want you to choose, for love's sake, to love this broken, sinful Onesimus who has humiliated you, stolen from you, and harmed you, just like God loved you. That's the big point of this message. The gospel calls us to love, and that love will push us further and deeper than we ever imagined. It would take us to places we would not naturally go. It will put us into relationships that we wouldn't naturally pursue. Philemon is being asked to do something that is monumental. Everything in Philemon will be saying, he has to be punished, he must pay. But only gospel love will bring forgiveness. It will push Philemon further and deeper than he could ever imagine. It will compel him to forgive. And forgiveness, although it can be very hard work, is very simple. It just simply means saying to the person who's harmed you, you don't owe me anything for this. You don't owe me. Now, if you committed a crime, you may owe a debt to society. If you harmed other people, you may owe a debt to them. But as far as I'm concerned, you don't owe me anything. I don't want anything from you. And ultimately, by forgiving, Philemon will become more like Jesus. So as we uh, close here, how does Paul do healthy confronting? Let's take a quick look at how he starts his letter. His letter to Philemon starts, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayer because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. If someone had to confront me and they started off with something like that, I'd be happy to see them. I really would. I mean, see how Paul delights in this man. I hear about your faith, about your love for the saints. You've refreshed the hearts of so many people. He's sensitive to what this man does well. He's a specific He doesn't charge in saying, I've got a problem with you. Or even, look, you're a nice guy, but you really got to get yourself together. He takes the time to appreciate Philemon. And notice also, Paul doesn't label Philemon. He doesn't say, you rich, slave-owning, arrogant, dirty word. Now listen to me, I got something to tell you. That's labeling, isn't it? That's what some of us do in our relationships as we move from discussing the issue to attacking the person. They relate to they're lazy. They drop the ball so they can't be trusted. And we go labeling them with accusations. And when we do that in a confrontation, we put the person on the defensive. 
But Paul opens Philemon up by firstly expressing appreciation for who he is and appreciation for the relationship. And then he anticipates all that Philemon can be, that God is doing something in Philemon's life to make him more like Jesus by challenging him, pushing him out of his comfort zone to be more like Jesus. And it worked. We do have a kind of a Paul Harvey rest of the story kind of thing. Because at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul writes at the letter where he does all the, the last minute things that he says. He says, I'm sending uh, Onesimus to you with this letter. And he'll tell you everything that's going on. Onesimus is freed by Philemon and becomes a leader in the church. Church tradition is that eventually Onesimus becomes um, uh, the bishop of Ephesus after John and Timothy, the third bishop of Ephesus, who would spiritually lead his generation in that city. Resolving this relationship opens up the possibility for Onesimus to become a leader in the church. And don't you think that Philemon, as an old man, said to himself, I'm so glad that Paul took the effort to confront me and did it so graciously, and I didn't crucify Onesimus. I'm so glad I didn't brand him. I'm so glad I didn't demand that he pay me what he owed, but I set him free. And so the lesson here is if you have some confronting to do, please pray and then be gracious. Wrap your confrontation and appreciation and anticipation. Because disappointments will come, how we deal with disappointments will make all the difference and open up the opportunity for incredible things to happen. In Jesus' name, amen.